Hi there. Welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. This is a little bit of a special bonus episode, which we're putting out outside of our usual fortnightly publishing schedule, because we wanted to talk about something that happened a week ago, which was the so-called debate of the century between Jordan Peterson and Slavoj Žižek. And we are very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Angela Nagel to try to tease out what the import of this debate was. A quick announcement before we get started, and it's a bit of a sad one. Our friend Ben Fogel, who's been part of Alpha Bunga Bunga for the past year, is unfortunately leaving the podcast. He's busy with his PhD and other writing and editorial projects, so he's no longer going to be involved in producing and hosting Alpha Bunga Bunga. But of course, we'd like to say cheers, Ben, for all your contributions over the past year, and good luck. You will be hearing Ben one more time on the podcast next week in an episode with Ken and Malik on identity and migration, which we recorded a little while back, but will only be coming out next week. All right, on with the show. Very warm welcome and a welcome back, actually, to Angela Nagel, who was first on the podcast, I think, about a year and a half ago. Um, And we've really been wanting to have her back much earlier than this but now she's here and we're going to talk about Peterson versus Zizek. Hi Angela, how's it going? Hi, how's it going? Very well. Uh very well actually kind of excited to uh talk about this um thing that was billed as the debate of the century uh which I mean I guess you can get away with it because the century is quite young otherwise it'd be pretty disappointing <laughs> I think. <laughs> That's true. Um it's not of the debate of the last 100 years but just merely the last 19, 18 and a yeah. half so I think we're okay. Um I guess everybody who's listening to this has watched the debate or is at least familiar with enough of it and what happened and who Zizek and Peterson are that I don't have to explain all of it. But I mean, I guess what can we say about it? That it was ostensibly a debate between left and right, uh, between maybe supposedly the current embodiment of what the right looks like and maybe what the left looks like. Though that's debatable. Um, And I think, you know, much of the commentary is picked up on. They both have a ostensibly a mutual enemy in the kind of postmodern liberal left or radical liberalism or however you wish to characterize that sort of body of thought which is uh, very prevalent today uh but it's also was meant to be about happiness and i think that's ended up maybe being one of the less interesting aspects of the debate but let's let's actually get into that before i actually ask angela what she's been up to so what have you been up to recently um I've kind of taken a couple of months off of, um, uh, I haven't actually published anything in a couple of months, um, but uh, I'm working on uh, a couple of projects, kind of essay pieces. Um, uh, One is about uh, beauty as a public good. Uh, The other one is about um, uh, internal, uh, intra-elite class conflict, essentially. but I won't give too much away about those. You'll have to see them when they come out. Sounds really good. Um, so uh, before we talk about, before we get into talking about the um, actual content of what they talked about and um, the Jijek Peterson debate, we were before, just before we um, we dialed you up, Angela. We were talking about historical comparisons and precursors. Um, George came up with some 
Alex and I came up with some, and but we can't. We're not sure if there's anyone that really fits because the ones we came up with, and maybe you have some others in mind. The only two that we could think of basically were um, Foucault and Chomsky, which mm. was set up less as a confrontation and more as a kind of um, dialogue, I guess. And then also, obviously, um, Gore Vidal and William Buckley, mm. who are again um, that was more confrontational, but they were public intellectuals rather than standing, I guess, for academic traditions or relating to the academy either. So they're both there isn't easy there aren't easy analogues for um for this kind of particular kind of debate between figures like this. Yeah, well uh, because Buckley was one of the conservatives who really did go and debate a lot of people, when I was thinking of kind of good debates of the past, he kept being the <laughs> one side of all of them. So uh, Jermaine Greer debated him once. Is really good. I don't think there's any, I've never seen any video footage of it, but you can, the audio is up on, on YouTube somewhere. And I was also thinking of Baldwin versus Buckley was another good one. But those were, and then of course it was Greer versus Mailer, which was also very good. But those were uh, direct conflict. And they were also much more clear. Um, you know, it was it was very you know, it was it was confrontational, and it was very clear what both sides were were arguing for, um, and they were kind of enemies in a way. Um, whereas the, I think one of the reasons this was a bit more confused is that the both of them have a kind of um, both of them have ended up. I guess with a kind of bee in their bonnet about uh, contemporary identity politics, if you like, um, and uh, and because that you know it, it shapes so much of all the debates that go on now, um, I, it seemed like that is what they both find themselves in in conflict with most of the time, even though what they're supposed to be representing in the debate is like a you know, a, a capitalism versus communism kind of thing. And it didn't really end up being that debate. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting. And it's really useful to be reminded of the debates with Germain Greer and the fact, like you say, that Buckley did other these other debates as well. Mm. Um, I was thinking, I mean, just to, again, as can weigh by partly by way of framing um, the context of the debate, something that's been intriguing to me is trying to explain Peterson's appeal. Because um, it really isn't, um, it doesn't. He doesn't speak to me. And trying to figure out what it is about him that appeals to a particular generation. Because um, I know, I mean, some students have um, students who are engaged and switched on. Some have mentioned to me that they quite like Peterson or are intrigued by him or interested by him, which I'm always surprised by because these are the good students. And it seems to me so obvious. And they're men. Um, and it seems to me so obvious that a kind of uh, or mystifying as to why an intellectual nullity like Peterson would have any appeal. And the only thing or the thing that I've come up with, um, I think, is it's about authority. I think it's because he's uh, he embodies a kind of um, I want to say patriarchal, but I don't mean it in the grand feminist sense of patriarchal. I just mean like he's your dad. He's kind of a middle-aged or more older gentleman who has um, some kind of, he's a professional figure with some standing and he has authority. And we don't have many male figures of authority in contemporary society. And I think it's this that explains his, you know, make your bed, stand up straight, um, get a job, 
have a have a meaningful relationship um i think that's why he appeals to a certain kind of um of young man because there are no male authority figures that are willing to just give very basic messages and he wears a suit well well i think I, th- I think there, i think there's something else if i can jump in i mean this is this is my first ever prolonged exposure to jordan peterson i kind of one of those dickheads who's like i've you know i've never seen star wars and like everyone was talking about peterson i'm not watching peterson so this is my first this is my first peterson Wait, have, you, have you really never seen star wars i saw the very first like the very the initial very first one that ever came out and i didn't like it and i don't like all the rest of it and i hate wow. that people always talk about it um, so peterson peterson is to you what marx is to peterson <laughs> <laughs> Right, but I, I feel like I'm avoiding something which is much more avoidable <laughs> than having some knowledge of Marxism, even the most basic. I mean, obviously it was striking that how unaid, how unread, unwell-read, is that the thing? Whatever, how badly read he was on Marxism. But we'll come on to that. I think there's something else about his appeal. I totally agree with uh, Phil's take that, you know, he represents an authority figure. But, I mean, obviously, intellectually, it's fairly shallow. It's quite banal, what he says. But for those people who probably don't read a lot of books, he does act as a bit of a one-stop shop. He provides a, a, a philosophical framework, a quite intuitive and easily graspable one, which is like evolution, evolutionary psychology, that, you know, people act the way they do because they've always acted this way for millennia because people are, whatever, selfish, defensive, have group mentality and whatever. All that people kind of thing. People are lobsters. Pe- whatever. People are lobsters, basically. He also offers a political critique and a political standpoint that you can... You know, you, that you can hang your hat on if you're a little bit annoyed by identity politics and the constant shouting and screaming and bad faith. You can kind of go, OK, well, this provides me an answer to this. And then, mm-hmm. of course, there's what Phil said, which is a personal philosophical, uh, excuse me, personal psychological orientation and a sort of morality or guide to life, which is, you know, take personal responsibility, man up. He's the daddy that's otherwise absent. And he's not very good at any any one of those things you could find a better evolutionary psychologist to read you could find a better critic of the liberal left identity politics postmodernism whether a left-wing version or right-wing version you take your pick and you could also find probably a better coach (laughs) as well but he provides a one-stop shop providing all three of those and i guess that might explain his popularity yeah i mean he's definitely a self-help guru um primarily uh, self-help in the the kind of female genre of self-help is ubiquitous, um, but uh, I guess the kind of masculine self-help is always seen as very suspect and tends to come under attack, and then it kind of strengthens itself because of that, you know, because of being attacked in that way. Um, I think, though, his appeal, I mean... So some of his appeal comes from that. Um, also the fact that, I guess, he he filled that space of being a, um, you know, at, at the right time of, of being a vocal um, critic of um, kind of campus identity politics who was willing to go out there and put his face and name to it. And so he was, you know, that's how he got that kind of um, a, a cult following. Um but I, I think that his um, the reason that he maybe fills a, a bigger purpose too is is a um, attention in the the kind of uh, attention that, that exists within liberalism, uh, which is a system that is in a kind of crisis. Uh, 
and he is asserting more of a classical liberalism. Now, some people have uh, said that that's not the case because they want to believe that he's actually, you know, some, you know, a, a kind of um, uh, like a, a crypto fascist or something like that, right? Uh, that that's kind of the way everything is is described now. But I do think that that is actually legitimate. He he is trying to. Um, bring the center of politics back towards a kind of classical liberalism, in other words, away from the progressive liberalism that comes from Rousseau. So he would assert, you know, classical liberal values, but also fundamentally believes, as the kind of early modern liberals did, that human nature is not totally malleable. Mm. I mean, that's one of his central claims. Yeah, I mean, he's a he's a kind of, I thought, a small... I don't know if small C conservative, because that's used to describe people who, you know, want to hold back history. I think there's a I think his conservatism is a little bit more than that. But he's a kind of, I don't know, a petty conservative in an age in which liberalism is hegemonic. So, I mean, he's he is a liberal, as you say, I mean, in terms of the broadest possible categories. But he's also just mm-hmm. kind of a conservative concerned with maintaining a holistic order and making sure that people live moral lives or helping people live more lives. And by the end of the debate, when Zizek had completely cucked him, I guess, um, to use the parlance of the age, uh, he'd completely cucked him. And I almost felt a bit sorry for Peterson. He's not this monster (laughs) that he's made out to be. He's just kind of like, yeah, yeah, he's this kind of middle-aged depressive who you're like, yeah, okay, Mm. mate. Like, you know, you (laughs) you keep trying to help people to live more lives. It's, It's, this is a little bit something tragic to him. Yeah, I almost thought there was something kind of innocent to his line of questioning, right? Because when I when I saw that he was going to do his bid on the Communist Manifesto and that he admitted openly that he hadn't read Zizek and that he had only read the Communist Manifesto, just like a tiny pamphlet, uh, there was something almost kind of innocent about that. And also I thought there was something innocent about the fact that he was saying, you know, well, what would be so strange about asking a Marxist about the Communist Manifesto? Like, isn't this meant to be the, isn't this meant to be a central document of the contemporary left? But of course, I mean, it's such a mess untangling all of this. But one of the the things that made all of this make no sense whatsoever is he's trying to marry this kind of classical liberalism with Cold War anti-communism. Uh, and the fundamental mistake there is, is his mistake in understanding the contemporary American left or the Anglo-American left, which is itself more a product of anti-communism or at least anti-Stalinism than it is of the Communist Manifesto. So, well, sorry, Andrew, just just to interrupt that, the, before we sort of get on to the, I guess, the, the significance of the, the debate between the two of them, I guess there's a question, what do you, what do you, what's your account of why Zizek is so appealing? Because if, if Peterson's appeal lies partly in the fact that he, I don't know, he looks like Pencil Vester and sounds like Kermit, but he can still <laughs> become this kind of cultural force. He's a middle-aged oppressive. And Zizek is this neurotic, um, mm. very unhappy figure, just like Peterson is, the stranger debating happiness. What What is... I guess what what is um, what does Zizek re- represent um, for the for the contemporary um, contemporary left? Well, I think Zizek's appeal um, is that he is eccentric and funny, um, but also one thing I, I think really came across um, in the debate is actually 
he's actually quite a nice person. Like he could have he could have been quite cruel in that debate, right? It would have been very easy for him to <clears> just like <throat> relentlessly, you know, demolish like every everything Peterson said. But he was actually quite generous, you know. And even when, you know, the the only bit where he where he was combative was was at the very end when when he he was kind of saying that this postmodern neo-Marxism you're talking about, you know, uh, doesn't make any sense. Um, Even then he was saying, I know what you mean when you say that, you know what I mean? Like he, he, he was, he was being quite generous in spirit and, uh, and, and, you know, he, so he is a lovable character, you know, uh, and there aren't many of those around, um, you know, in, in that world. So I think that's, kind of his appeal and also you know he's um he's appealing because he's not um well because he also represents a kind of a a a rejection of the dominant form of what he would call the liberal left um you know so it's it's weird because they both have a separate fan base in part based on this kind of widespread uh, dislike of that style of politics, which otherwise doesn't have much of a voice, you know, um, which is why, you know, Zizek himself has come under attack a lot, you know, from within the left itself. Mm. Well, I, yeah, go ahead. He does come across as very likable, doesn't he? Well, I th- there was also there was also a Peterson's appreciation of Zizek as a person. I think kind of early yeah. on, he goes, "You're." Well, and I also appreciate that you're you're quite a character. You know, you have personality, which you know takes a certain moral courage to be a character today. And it's like, Christ, that's true, isn't it? That's that's depressing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, um, I I spoke to him myself uh, one time, and um, uh, you know, it was it, it's very disarming because he is hilariously funny, and uh, he's kind of he's not very careful about what he says, which again, today because we're living through this very weird time where, you know, kind of one badly phrased sentence can destroy your career, you know, instantly. Um, it's funny to have someone who's just, who says outrageous things and who isn't very careful about, um, you know, protecting their, uh, you know, career from these kinds of attacks. Um, but, you know, so for example, uh, when I spoke to him, the first thing he launched into is a series of questions, um, about who, who, who's better, um, uh, Michael Collins or Eamon de Valera. And then he was like, who's better, Joyce or Beck? <laughs> and it went on <laughs> like that. So he had all these questions about all these Irish figures, you know, um, and, uh, which he proceeded to answer himself. <laughs> <laughs> I was literally just about to ask, did he give you then a chance to speak? No. <laughs> Excellent. Um, I wanted to ask, Angela, what you thought was the importance of the debate, if any. And also, I mean, you had mentioned before, uh, when we were chatting before recording, that you thought there was a particularly weird, out-of-place character, or maybe out-of-time character to the debate. So maybe you could explain what you thought about that. Yeah, well, I think basically this was kind of somewhat clear before, but it became much clearer because of the approach that Peterson took, that he is totally out of time. I mean, you know, he's still fighting the Cold War. um, And he's talking about 
uh, he, he, he is having this, you know, he, he's fighting the ghost of Marx, basically. Um, and then his real world point of reference for, you know, Marxism coming to fruition is Joseph Stalin. Um, and, you know, there, there aren't many Stalinists around today. <laughs> And, uh, you know, except for sort of strange corners of the Internet, I suppose, um, certainly in, in, in the Anglo-American um, context. And so it's kind of like, who is he actually arguing with here? You know, uh, so he's having an argument with the kind of left that's long dead. Um, and uh, and so that's really why it ended up being quite strange. You know, some mm. I, I think, yeah, as I said, he, he, he kind of fundamentally... I think doesn't understand what the left is now. And, and you know, it's interesting because he's guilty of exactly what he accuses uh, his opponents, I mean, the liberal left of. So he, he Zizek has, uh, excuse me, Peterson has this misguided interpretation that Marxism is about this binary competition or struggle to the death, maybe even between labor and capital, between proletarian and bourgeoisie. And that sort of group identity, that sort of, Two competing groups facing off against each other is the worst thing you can have in politics. You know, you want a, a kind of more holistic society uh, of maybe individualist co- competition, but not uh, group competition. And he sees that the postmodernists, once they felt that the left was losing, that communism was losing, that they then adopted group identities, identity politics, as a way of continuing on this binary struggle. So, you know, you, you face off... Uh, the first world against the third world, black versus white, women versus men, etc., etc., etc. I mean, that's that's a very, very crude reading of <laughs> what actually happened in, in the kind of um, the kind of the end of Marxism, basically, and 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 the the the, the development of postmodernism, and and in some cases very wrong. But he, but Peterson seems to do the, exactly the same thing in that he wants to carry on this Cold War, but because there are no Marxists, he has to invent cultural Marxists as yeah. the kind of big enemy. So in fact, it's funny that he ends up guilty of exactly what he accuses, uh, you know, the liberal left of doing. Yeah, okay. And like, so his idea that um, cultural antagonisms, identitarian antagonisms and so on, have essentially replaced, um, you know, class is actually true. And you know, lot, nobody has been better at pointing out the cultural turn than Marxists, right? Mm. Um, so, but his mistake is thinking that somehow you are going to get to communism or indeed Stalinism from cultural antagonism. <laughs> right. Like there's no root, the, the, there's no amount of uh, what he calls, let's say, cultural Marxism, that is ever going to produce a change in the economy, fundamentally, you know, or in the means of production or anything like that. There's no point at which cultural conflicts will suddenly transform the economy. So he shouldn't have any fear. <laughs> he shouldn't have any fear that, that, that uh, you know, cultural Marxism no. is ever going to turn into, um, you know, a... a, a Marxism. At best, it creates an, an oppressive climate, which might be a little bit Stalinist, but <laughs> that's about as far as it goes. Yeah. So I, 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 had, a, I had a question here, which might be <clears throat> might be a little bit um, not fully formed, but is is your sort of reading of this that it's it, it comes across as in some ways a little bit old fashioned because it's almost in the the period 
of of the Cold War, i.e. not just before the end of the end of history, which is the period we are now, but before the end of history. So it, it comes across as kind of a re- political in one sense, but um, not really, the, the debate wasn't really aligned with, with the sort of political d- discussions that are live on the ground at the moment. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a way of um, trying to take contemporary conflicts and channel them into uh, something that would make more sense kind of under Reagan or something like that, you know? Um, And I can't help but think, I mean, you know, Peterson has obviously come under a lot of attack and stuff like that and more than like most people would be willing or or able to to take. But he has also had um, some institutional support in the media like so for example if you look at the 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 quite positive way in which he was the the him and the whole intellectual dark web thing was written about in i think the new york times um you know and also like say heterodox academy and and those kind of people like there there is a milieu there of people who do have influence um who broadly speaking you know support him and have sort of similar uh, politics to him, but I can't help but think that that he's also playing a role within conflicts that are going on in the right um, and in the battle for the mainstream political right. Um, the the kind of Trump and the populist thing was a genuine shock to the system, um, and which, you know, the the entire um, liberal kind of, it would be too nice to say intelligentsia, but academic and uh, media class or whatever, uh, have been going crazy, of course, ever since. Um, and I think the, the reason for that is because that moment kind of represented a genuine possibility of uh, a change in it, within the right. Um, and he kind of is a reactionary within that context because he is trying to pull uh, the the mainstream right, the establishment right, back to the politics of the Cold War. Um, and you see this in like TPUSA and those kinds of things, which want to talk about the stuff that preoccupied the mainstream right before Trump came along. Uh, so it was all about hooray for the free market. Uh, kind of neocon foreign policy, that kind of stuff. Um, mm. And so I, I see I see him as as playing a role as an internal reactionary within the right, kind of almost against mm-hmm. that um, populist wave, which was which was, you know, not uh, which was not so religious in its view of the the free market and things like that. So one of the under, one of the kind of reads of, of the whole um debate and how it worked out was obviously a psychoanalytical one that, that Zizek is kind of um doing some psychoanalysis on on Peterson or allowing Peterson to work through this particular obsession that he has with um cultural Marxism that this is his fetish object how do you um do you do you think this is this is right what I mean why why is it that's that people are obsessed with cultural Marxism I think I think uh, everyone in this discussion would be very happy if cultural Marxism was whatever that means were were a really dominant force in American politics, but it really isn't, is it? Um, I think actually the 
what what would have been an interesting debate is if if they made it about happiness or something like that and just got rid of the Cold War communism versus capitalism thing and actually just had a discussion about psychoanalysis mm. because that's that's really what both of them are maybe most interesting and expert on. Um, uh, Young in the case of Peterson, um, Lacan in the case of uh, Zizek, if they had had a discussion just about that, that actually might have been more interesting, but uh, they kind and, of tried to do both at the same time, which didn't make any sense. And they did sort of get there towards the end. And actually, on, on the psychoanalysis point, I thought one of the most interesting responses to it is something which just come out, which is Doug Lane at Zero Books did a, a little video on on his take on it. I thought it was an interesting interpretation, um, which is that Zizek's approach to the whole thing, especially when it became obvious that Peterson was absolutely his intellectual inferior and that there wasn't going to be a real debate about whatever, capitalism versus socialism or anything like that, but that that he wanted to, he basically assumed leadership of, of it, almost like an analyst would with regard to his patient and kind of tried to psychoanalyze Peterson to get him to give up his fetish object of the cultural Marxists. That, you know, if you give up your fetish object of the cultural Marxist, you then have to examine your own presuppositions. What is actually driving mm. you? And, you know, Zizek uses the example of the, uh, taken from Lacan, of the jealous husband, that even if it proves true that everything that the husband success, that the husband suspects of the cheating wife is actually true, that is, she is cheating on him, his jealousy is still pathological. Right. And, mm-hmm. and, and it's taken, he uses that as a sort of metaphor to examine, you know, why if uh, someone on the right is completely obsessed with cultural Marxism, you know, they need cultural Marxism to exist for them to find their feet in, in society and find their seat, feet in politics. And one could say the same about a lot of the left as well, which it needs the enemy of rising fascism uh, or imminent fascism or whatever to find grounding in politics. And without that, suddenly they're a little bit at sea and have to look within, as it were, within the left and examine, you know, why the left isn't winning. Mm. And I thought that was a good take. And I think, he yeah. achieved, sorry, I think he achieves that. I, or maybe that's a question. Do you think he achieves that in terms of psychoanalyzing Peterson? Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it certainly gave, you know, made Peterson, uh, you know, pause and perhaps even self-doubt a little bit. I mean, the the rare occasions where something, you know, where, where they ended up actually discussing anything rooted in uh, materialism, uh, where Zizek was saying, like, how do you solve the problems of the ocean? You know, um, Peterson actually had to... <laughs> Peterson that just had sounds to, fun, had, yeah. Had to admit that actually, yeah, that's not something that a that a, a, a company with, with the profit motive is going to ever do. So on the rare occasion where, you know, a, a genuine like materialist question was posed, he, he, he kind of conceded straight away. Um, so I, but I think it is true that that is a, was a good approach in the sense that um, for Peterson, cultural Marxism is the fetish object, but also uh it is so because it allows him to believe that the cultural 
uh, movement, if you like, or or the, the 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 form that the left takes, at least in academia and the media and stuff like that, that 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 is rooted in Marxism. Like he has to believe that, you know. Um, and and when it was examined, it didn't really make much sense. Um, but for him, he he has to believe that because then you can return to a safer ground in which the liberal system, which is in crisis, can reassert itself and can make sense again because it has this comforting old enemy um, of mm. of the Cold War when in actual fact it doesn't. Right. And maybe we should turn this same lens onto Zizek and ask, is he still relevant? I mean, that's maybe too provocative a way to put it. Um, but maybe I think Phil maybe has a has a point or a question on this more specifically. Well, only to say, I suppose, um, it's hard to think of somebody else who would stand in on um, on the platform against Peterson, um, because you know, for you know, as we've already said, there are no cultural Marxists. Um, no, you know, I mean, there are people who Peterson describes as cultural Marxists, but I mean, it doesn't actually exist. We know what he means, but it's not an actual kind of coherent category. Um, and the people who he opposes wouldn't debate with him because they would all like no platform him, right? Yeah. Or de-platform him, or they wouldn't be coherent. So it's hard to think of anybody else. I mean, I think also Zizek, I mean, he's somebody who um, he doesn't just subsist off provocations and, um, you know, provocations and these kinds of interventions. He also has kind of solid, um, a solid long list of uh, philosophical psychoanalytic publications weighty tomes and all that and i guess the question is how many more of those or how many if he is if he's got more of that left in him he probably doesn't have that much more left in him Uh, i mean you know he is um he's an old man uh but but it is it, it's true it's hard to think who a younger version of him would be or or even uh, who else could have could have done that because as you say they would have all um not been willing to share a platform with peterson and the two things are part of the same problem the fact that they would be unwilling to share a platform with peterson is also why they will never be like zizek right because um you know, dealing with difficult ideas um, is what created Zizek, you know. Um, I mean, my real fear is that, you know, even if you look at some of the responses to the debate, like from writers on the left, like some of them were just like needlessly uh, personally vicious about Zizek himself, saying like, you know, it's so unnecessary. And I just thought, like, this is exactly the problem, you know. I mean, you can character assassinate him all you like, but we're not going to replace him. Yeah, um, yeah. We're not going to replace Barbara Ehrenreich. We're probably not going to replace Bernie Sanders. You know, the, there is this whole <laughs> older generation uh, of the left that, you know, I don't see a younger version coming up behind them, in part because... Uh, because they have the nothing people- to say, that's why. Well, yes, but 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 the thing that 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 both Zizek and Peterson are are being critical of the the culture that they are both trying to describe in their different ways doesn't really have a name, um, but we all know what it is. And that's why Zizek said, "I know what you mean." Um, that culture has fostered a situation where, you know, we're we're just not going to have those kinds of interesting uh, 
people emerging, uh, they will be shot down immediately. I mean, imagine, for example, a young Zizek trying to enter like academia now. He just wouldn't, just wouldn't be allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, and he, he, he would be cancelled immediately. So I wish, that, I wish that would cause people, I wish people would pause and like think about the seriousness of that, that, that we're not going to actually be even producing intellectuals anymore because um, the left is just not allowing um, people to uh, put a foot wrong on any, and, and, it's, and it's all on cultural questions. You know, you can debate economic questions all over the place. You can have all kinds of, of different and eccentric kind of views <laughs> when it comes to that. But, but it's really the, the primarily cultural battlefield of liberalism um, where everyone has to uh, stay within ever-narrowing kind of confines. It's an interesting point about young Zizek because um, he, I mean, famously from his own biography and discussion, when he talks about his own background, famously he was, um, because he was classed as a dissident, in Yugoslavia in the 1980s and 1970s, he was um, famously, what they did was the Yugoslav establishment um, would, uh, they wouldn't allow you to teach. So they gave him time to do research. They kind of gave him time to be at an institute and they allowed him to travel abroad. And that was how he got to Paris and studied under, um, connected with Jacques Lacan and studied under um, Jacques Lacan's followers. Um, but he wasn't allowed to teach students. So he had no, in, he could have no influence over students, but had time to actually think. Um, so I don't, I don't know how, how does the, dis, I guess you're not allowed to do research, you know, in the kind of in the hegemony of the cultural left as it stands in the Western Academy. You're not allowed to do research and you're not allowed to, um, you're not allowed to teach. And you're also not allowed to stand, you're not allowed to be on a platform because then you'll be deplatformed. So you're not even invited to the university to talk. So I guess, yeah, basically you're completely shut out. That's right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that was another funny irony of this debate because Peterson kind of sees himself as like, um, you know, uh, 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 yeah, a, a Cold War anti-communist uh, and he, he references the kind of Russian dissidents. But Zizek really was one, you know, and he's almost like a dissident on both sides. Yeah, that's right. He's ended up being a dissident under both systems. So I, I wanted to just refer a little bit to some criticisms which were made of Zizek, which is that he doesn't chart a political way forward. And I guess one could even ask whether he is really a, a political thinker. Uh, that's not a criticism. It's just a, an evaluation of his thought. And I, for me, like Zizek is very important. I mean, just in terms of what I grew up reading and thinking about. And he was the most brilliant analyst of Post, post-history and that, and that strange period in which ideology was denied and yet he insisted those who most deny ideology are the most ideological themselves. And I wonder if we're entering you know, into a more tumultuous period where whether politics has come back or not is an open question, but certainly uh, the assumption of a eternal present has maybe drifted away a little bit. I mean, we're not in the post cold we're, we're not in the post cold war period anymore. Uh, and I just wonder whether Zizek is still I don't want to say relevant because that's not the right way to put it. I, I wonder whether Zizek still has the same sharpness. And I think again to refer to to a point someone else made, which is you know, if if Zizek didn't have the liberal left as um as an object of opposition, 
you know, whether it's in his criticisms of uh, multiculturalism or environmentalism or identity politics, if he didn't have that object to criticize, what would he then do? If he suddenly had to engage politically, what would his response be? And that's quite a, a difficult thing to imagine. And I guess it's all, one of the reasons why he has been accused of liberal pessimism, because he doesn't seem to chart a way forward. Um you know, I think, I mean, there was this Jacobin piece about it, which I, I don't agree with uh, a lot of it because I think it w- wasn't enough, it wasn't intellectually generous enough to Zizek and what Zizek was actually attempting to do. But uh, the one point they do raise is that, you know, he defended, for example, universal health care, the fight for, uni- for for Medicare for all in the U.S., and then he frames it precisely in terms of freedom. And I think that's quite important. And Zizek does uh, gesture at that, at least. But there isn't a huge amount of, of uh, political pointing the way forward from him. Is that a problem, do you think, Angela? Yeah, but I, well, it's not a problem. I mean, I think he was just being very honest. Um, I think if, you know, I I think what he probably feels right now is that, you know, um, some kind of a social democracy, uh, a very, um, which in many cases is just uh, trying to undo some of the, damaged on uh during the the kind of reagan and thatcher era you know in many ways it's like a return to um an older form of politics but i think that you know that seems to be the only game in town right now and um and i think that he accepts that but he also knows that that isn't marxist like that's not going to fundamentally transform the global economy Mm. um and that he doesn't see a realistic he doesn't see anything emerging in the world right now that is going to do that and i think that's just his honest view of you know he, he's not necessarily like i guess there comes a point at which you you have to not just say what you think ought to be the case but what actually is and what is likely to be the case um and i think he's just being honest about the fact that he doesn't see um you know a, a, a global you know uh, transformation of fundamental transformation of capitalism um emerging yeah and i mean that that thing about pessimism of the of the intellect and optimism of the will is such a cliche but it still remains valid in that despite a couple of glimmers of hope in recent years we still live in a situation which is really quite desperate in terms of the possibilities for social transformation (laughs) Uh, and I think facing that honestly and coldly is still the important task today I don't think we can get away from that and obviously that doesn't mean to be that one should be depressive in the sense of being wrapped up in one's own concerns and being unable to act in the world on the contrary but it it does mean that you have to be aware of what the limitations are today and where where we actually stand yeah and I think also Like Zizek is always kind of doing two things at once, you know, and so I, I think that his pessimism should be read in a more complex way, as you say. Like, sometimes I think a very stark statement of pessimism can be the the jolt that you need that's actually much more powerful than pretending, you know, we're, we're going to transform the world and it's just around the corner, you know. That can actually be ultimately a pacifying uh, thing to say. Yeah. Um, I think also <clears throat> when people who are on the radical left get a bit older, I do think I do think they they tire of um, 
being part of a fantasy, basically, like a collective fantasy that like we're just about to win, you know, that kind of thing. I think that mm. that tends to grate on. I always think of this uh, really funny interview um, that Norman Finkelstein did with. I actually don't know who the interviewer was, but I know that his name was Frank because he kept he kept saying, you know, Frank, we have to be. <laughs> and, and he's and he did. And say he wants to that, say like, you want to be Frank. <laughs> we have to be Frank. Yeah. He's saying, no, like he's saying, you know, Frank, uh, I used to be a Maoist, you know, and we were always saying we we're just about to win. You know, the, our movement is getting stronger. And it, now I'm an old man. I'm tired of cults. I'm tired of being always taking part in this kind of collective fantasy. You know, we have to be real, realistic about the, the real, uh, you know, possibilities that are before us. Um, and so... Yeah, I mean, there there is a point at which if you've been hearing this your entire life that you have to just say, you know, um, yeah, I'm just going to be real. I'm just, I'm just going to be realistic in how I describe the world and, and like what real, you know, political opportunities there are on the horizon instead of being a utopian and just saying this is how the world ought to be. Um, so I think that, yeah, there's definitely a role for that kind of pessimism. Um, and I think it might actually be the thing that people need to hear maybe um, a little bit more at times. Absolutely. Well, that's Angela Nagel being patronizing to people, making yet more friends. <laughs> <laughs> Angela, thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking Zizek versus Peterson, various other things over with you. We have to have you back on uh, again. Cheers. <laughs> Did, yeah. were, you, you, were you actually there for the debate or did, did you watch it on... Uh, I was watching yeah. Amber. <laughs> yeah, yeah so, so, we you, so you watched it and, yeah. with some popcorn and... Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. Oh, it sounds like fun. I, yeah, I mean, it, it was unfortunately on, on Passover evening and, and I was had family commitments consequently. I feel like it was quite anti-Semitic for them to schedule it on that day. <laughs> <laughs> How many Jewish intellectuals are watching this? Come on! <laughs> They missed a trick to, of kind of like who who won, who was like there must have been a way to quantify or or like. I mean, it was very clear. I think the consensus was the Gijek one, right? There was all the memes yeah. of um, him like boiling lobster and all that. No, and and also and and I think I mean this is a point that Amber made. I think on on Red Scare that the Reddit like on Reddit there were like Reddit slash. Jordan Peterson or whatever, there are people on there like, wow, that Zizek guy is pretty good. I'm going to check him out. Or people like, wow, um, Peterson was really intellectually unprepared. Like, that's quite disappointing. I'm going to check out Zizek. You know, it's like, yeah, it just goes to show you go in and you argue and you put in a good argument. It's actually worth doing rather than kind of fucking no platforming people. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's another thing. Um, you know, I have done a couple of... Um, speaking events and I don't really do debates because they're not they're, they're not really something I'm particularly good at but um uh when I have uh I often have these like young like guys coming up to me afterwards like 18ish age and um you know they're not fully politically formed like I mean they're they're coming into contact with these ideas a lot of the time for the first time and um but they're in this world where they're kind of listening to people like Peterson and um, and 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 to stuff well to the right. <laughs> Peterson will just say, uh, but what I found is that they were like sponges. Like you know, I was talking to them about um, 
you know, different thinkers on the left that have influenced me. They never heard of any of them. And like one of them was like taking them down on his phone. He was like asking me to, you know, I was giving them reading lists, yeah. um, basically, you know, they, and so they're like very interested. You know, they, they, they do like a lot of them are just like very interested in being able to have a debate about about anything really in a kind of an open way. Um, and they are just being like needlessly vilified and, and shut down if they put a foot wrong in any, any direction. And uh, yeah. yeah, it's even more than that, I think. I think it's because it's also, um, you know, if there's something about you, you know, and you've got a sense of kind of um, independence and a desire to uh, very basically control your own life, you're going to just, you know, if you've got those kinds of instincts, you're going to be able to smell bullshit. Yeah. And you're going to react badly to being told what to think and what to do. And then everyone's going to say, well, you're right wing then. And you're going to yeah. be, okay, yeah, well, okay, I'm right That's me then, yeah. Let me go on, yeah. yeah. Let me I was looking for an identity, right now I've got one, yeah. Yeah, or you start thinking, may as well be hung for a sheep as a lamb, you know. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Another thing too is that, and this is something that immediately when I thought of when when this thought occurred to me, I thought of the the what the Twitter reaction would be to even saying it, which is terrible. Is is in my head now, uh, which is that I noticed in I, I taught a little bit, not very much, just like adjunct, like temporary stuff. And my um, I don't know if if you guys have had this experience, but my experience of teaching was that I noticed a difference a general difference between boys and girls, um, which was that a lot of the young men tend to work their way through ideas by first just adopting a really extreme position and arguing <laughs> it. And they'll have a completely different position a year later, but the way they go through like deciding if something is right or not is like testing it out in that way. And so I think that that is misinterpreted a lot of the time, you know, um, or it's not seen as an opportunity for, you know, just like changing people's ideas. You know, I, I think that young women are much more likely to be cautious about, about aligning themselves with some kind of obscure ideology or, you know, something like that. I think that young men are much more likely to test out ideas in that way by, by seemingly very confidently and boldly stating mm. a position when in actual fact, they may not really hold it very firmly and they may, you know, they may be convinced to change their idea very quickly. Yeah. Um, but, you know, a few months later, they'll be really boldly stating the opposite position to somebody else, you know? Well, I, yeah. I was once a young man and... By that reckoning, we're all still young men on this podcast. So that's, great. that's great news for us. No, I, I, you know what I mean? You'll have like a 16-year-old saying, well, as a Titoist... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, all joking aside, I think you're absolutely right. Um, it's, it is some... I mean... You've given you've you've described something accurately that I'm aware of, but haven't really processed as such. And seeing it myself in educate higher education, and I, also speaking to my own experience, I mean, um, I've I vacillated, uh, kind of vacillated is the wrong word, but bounced around between a variety of hard political positions um, in uh, over the years. Um, I mean, stabilized now, obviously, and now for Bunga Bunga. But um, <laughs> before that, definitely. And it's an inter it's a really interesting observation. And like you say, I can exactly see why you'd be cautious about putting it on Twitter because it's it is the kind of um, kind of uh, point that would attract all the morons in their thousands. 
I yeah. mean, you need you need to remember that there are some people who really want there to be um, like incipient or, or kind of in proto-fascists and, and and want the these kind of young men who are expressing opinions in in quite a you know trying them out sort of way to really be quite far right wing and those are people whose liberalism needs to be um, I don't know morally <clears throat> kind of verified by these you know they're being a real threat of a, of a fascist menace whereas i think it is more accurate that a lot of the time it's it's you know people trying out ideas by by expressing them and then see and then realizing the the weaknesses and the contradictions when people push back and say like that's you know that's not correct or even in just you know expounding them realizing yeah i mean it's like a it's like a mirror image right you have the kind of um the Rousseauist progressive liberals um, using the the specter of fascism to uh, you know to to um, just self justify and kind of reinforce their own ideas, and you have the kind of classical liberal wing of liberalism, which we call the right, the mainstream right, using the specter of Stalinism. Uh, you know the uh, left authoritarianism to to do exactly the same thing if you if if you if we don't stay within the parameters of these kind of let's say left right divisions within liberalism these sinister forces from outside will will emerge so we must you know never budge and i mean yeah there's also the, we end up creating the we, you know people create the dystopias that they want right yeah um, and that that those dystopias serve a purpose, and so the incipient fascism is uh, can be a useful one for for people, as yeah. well as as well as incipient cultural Marxist takeover, you know, for that matter as well. Yeah, uh, what a life affirming note to finish on. <laughs> <laughs> he, he, yeah, I mean, he he was absolutely hilarious in it, to be honest. Like he, he did start off by saying something as well as the, the, the list of questions. Um, he, he did also say, now, um, I, I am, as you can see, I am a man who needs a, a woman to dominate me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. brilliant. And, by which he meant you have to interrupt me or I'll just keep going. And then I just completely failed to uh, <laughs> be the woman he wanted me that, to be. That's the kinkiest thing you could have done. <laughs> I know. <laughs>